Welcome to the Six Degree Podcast, the podcast where we grill our guests about the things that make them tick and find out how human connection plays a role in their life. I'm your host, Emily Merrill. I'm your host, Emily, and today I'm so excited. This is a long time coming to have my friend, Stephanie Arnold. She is an author and a speaker. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's so nice to see you and hear from you again. I know it's it's fun. I love how an intro and intros are always kind of like a blind date for me where you're like, well, you know, I could we could have five minutes of our time change, you know, add a little wisdom and that's it or like be a part of our lives in a bigger way. And thinking about it, you've been a part of my life now for several years and different iterations. You're moving. We've seen a lot of evolution of both of us. So really, I mean, I remember talking the first time with you and I was like, we're talking about kids and marriage and everything. And you're like, yeah, okay, fine. And then, then, you know, just watching you transform and move and marriage and home and baby and, and balancing it now, you know, that's, that's the thing where we women have an issue with, it's like you have your career and it's go, 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 go. And then all of a sudden it halts. Right. And you're like, what do I do in my skin now? Like, oh, I'm just a mom. Now I've got a, you know, I've got an independent, I've got somebody who's, who I've got to prioritize. And then that usually is a rough battle for a lot of them. Seems like you are conquering it. So congratulations. I, uh, my son calls both me and my husband, mom, and he he used to say data. And then my, my husband went away for a guy's trip in November and guys, this we're recording this in March of 2023. And uh, he has not said dada since. It has been exclusively mom. So I believe I say that because I feel like I have an extra set of moms around me and inclusive of my husband and my my sister who lives across the street and my best friend and my mom. But my son is like, ma'am, ma'am to everyone. Your husband's never going away again. <laughs> he's literally like I'm dada I'm dad <laughs> papa poppy like anything just right. stop calling me mom for god's sakes <laughs> so um yeah I feel like I, I I hit the jackpot on a very hands-on mom um who helps out but thank you for saying that so Stephanie we have like 30 minutes to cover a lot of things but we're going to talk about the time you know that casual time that you died um <laughs> no casual yeah yeah like you went to the mall and then you died and then we're gonna talk about your nail no I'm just kidding um but before we talk about you dying I think we should start at the beginning of the story and I love the once upon a time of someone's life before they died oh my god this is getting yeah. morbid um, any yeah, interviews you do where someone's had a near-death experience where you're like okay you transform from one position to another <laughs> Yeah. Um, this is like not, not very, very common for me, truthfully. Um, but let's start at the beginning because I love the story of how you met your husband and I want to start there. Sure. So I was a TV producer. I produced a lot of reality shows that your audience probably knows. I worked, um, I ran a division for Endemol, which, um, is known for extreme makeover home edition, deal or no deal. Um, all of those, those shows. And I was living in LA and, you know, the, the show that Patty Stanger developed, which was a millionaire matchmaker was launching. And she went to university of Miami, which is my alma mater. And a friend of mine was starting to produce her show. The show had never aired. 
And I sent an email to her. I'm like, if you ever find a nice Jewish guy, um, I'd be open. And she's like, and she sent it back. She's like, it's so nice to meet you. And we, we connected. Uh, we had our Jewish geography moment. And then she was like, absolutely. And I'd say six days after sending that email, she sent me an email saying, Jonathan Arnold will be calling. And that was it. And for the first time in my life, I didn't Google anyone. I didn't look up. I, it, there was just, you'll know as you listen to the story that intuition has really guided my life. And so I wanted to treat this differently for some reason than any other meeting or blind date or relationship, whatever have you. So I didn't Google. I sent the name to one of my best friends and she did all the Googling and she did that, but I didn't want to see any photos. And, and Patty doesn't send photos for the guy. She sends girls photos. I mean, she sends the photo of the girl to the guy. And Jonathan calls me and we stayed on the phone for about 45 minutes. And we both hung up the phone saying, could this be for the rest of our lives? It was just an, a, a weird thing. And two days later, five days later, I think it was, um, we had our first date. And in that moment, I was like, this is for the rest of my life. And six months later, we were married. What? And so you guys are in LA, you're this hotshot producer. Patty literally changes your life in a six month window. What happens next? Yeah, so he, you know, he lives in Chicago. He's a PhD economist from University of Chicago. And there's no way in heck I would have ever met somebody in that vertical where I was working in a completely different creative one. So he's like, how do you feel about Chicago? I'm like, I'm a Miami girl. I say no. <laughs> in Suntan U. I'm like, and then I'm living in LA. Chicago was not part of the plan. I don't do, you know, I do warm weather. And said, but, you know, you, you relocate for love. So I relocated Chicago. That's pretty much where my career stopped. Um, mm -hmm. Oprah had announced that she was calling it quits. Um, and that's where her studio was. And it really wasn't, it's Chicago is not known for their, their um, production. So at least at that time. And so we decided to start producing children. <laughs> and he had, he had a child from a previous relationship. And so I was a stepmom and they, and our first daughter was born a couple of years later after three rounds of IVF. And we had no issue, no problems, no complications. And that was great. And then the round seven of IVF, Jonathan um, had, took, took a job as the chief economist for the New York attorney general's office. So we relocated to New York. And during that time, I got pregnant with Jacob. And so everything was fine until it wasn't. So you had three rounds of IVF and then you got pregnant naturally with Jacob? No. So Jacob was round seven of IVF. So when I was pregnant, yeah. So I'd had a couple of miscarriages in between. And then, um, you know, with IVF, you want to have an insurance policy. And I was getting older. I was 40 years old when I was pregnant, when I got pregnant with Jacob, but I needed a backup embryo just in case, because the um, attrition rate of losing the embryos was very high with older eggs and whatever the process is. And so I had one female embryo that was healthy 
in storage. And then when we did IVF again, uh, there were two embryos that came out of that. One was a girl, one was a boy. And so the other one that was frozen was a girl. And so we decided to go with the boy and mm -hmm. everything was fine. And we were splitting our time between New York and Chicago. And then uh, at the 20 week ultrasound, as you all know now, they, you know, that's the big ultrasound where they see the spine, the heart, the, the fingers, toes. And at that moment, I was diagnosed with the placenta previa, mm. which is quite common. And so I, I had it too. Okay. So, so, yeah. you, so one in 200 risk, you know, it's basically where the placenta is um, laying on top of the uh, top of the cervix. And so if, you know, as the belly grows, as the uterus grows, it should move out of the way. Um, you know, the big risk that you're risking is you might need a C-section, right? Yeah. If, it, if it doesn't move out of the way. And I've, I had a C-section with Adina, but because she was too big. So it wasn't, it wasn't an unknown thing, but something sat in me in that moment where I looked at Jonathan and I said, I've got a bad feeling about this. And he was like, honey, you know, what are you talking about? You're getting great prenatal care. You're in two different hospitals at NYU and Northwestern. You know, it's, we don't know too much about it, but we'll find out. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And um, I said, look, I am special in a category of my blood type. I'm O negative, which is only 7% of this population. Wow. So I don't want to be special in any other category. And so it just, it had this ominous feeling, you know, when I, when I had this news, it like hit me. And like I said before, I'm intuitive, but, but this is something like, this wasn't the fear of, um, of pregnancy or like normal pregnancy fears. This was something else. So what does one do when they're freaked out over something? They, they become Dr. Google. So I was going to say, you Google everything. <laughs> Google everything. So, so it showed, you know, so I was online and was like placenta previa, the risks, um, no big deal. The doctor's like, don't lift anything heavy, you know, just relax. Um, and then it says, you know, some complications it could bleed. If that happens, you might need to be on bed rest. If it's a lot of blood, you might be on hospital bed rest. Um, if the placenta sometimes converge into the uterus, which is called a placenta accreta, if that happens, you could bleed more. You might need a hysterectomy. If that happens, you could hemorrhage. Um, and then you and the baby could die. And it's, it's so, so, okay. So just to pause you there, you have placenta previa, which most doctors literally wave away. Like they went in, they're like, you know, um, you've got placenta previa, but 30 weeks, we're, we're going to scan you again. Most likely it'll have moved. No biggie, but you get this news and something just like terrible creeps into you. Not just. It was the hair on the back of my neck. I mean, I, the, the way that I try and explain it to people is that you, it's a knowing you mm -hmm you know something is going to happen. You have a bad feeling about it. You might not know, be able to pinpoint what that is. It's like when you meet somebody and you shake their hand and you're like, I got a bad feeling. Yeah. Person. You're like, I'm going to switch subway chains. Yeah. Right. Right. Or, or you're about to date somebody. You're like, this is not going to be good, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. And then you're going to regret it later. Yeah. That, that feeling that everyone has, but it was, it was a, um, Foreboding. It was a feeling of doom. And so when I read all of the cascade of events to the nth degree, I it was that knowing that I saw everything happen. And I was like, this is going to happen. The only difference is the baby's going to survive. But and I so you, you didn't think you were going to survive at all. I so was like, 
I'm going to hemorrhage. I'm going to need a hysterectomy. Baby's going to be fine. I'll be dead on the operating table. Oh, so I'm it, sure Jonathan loved this part of you. And I love hundred percent. Like, you know, so, so Jonathan was an air force pilot. So yeah. he is very much about gauges, data, information, statistics. So of course he takes the company. He's like, what you are afraid of is less than a half, a half, a half percent chance of happening. You are getting your prenatal care. You are being listened to. But what are, you're getting diagnostics. It, there is nothing indicating you're going to have an accreta. There's nothing indicating that that you're going to hemorrhage or need a hysterectomy. Like, why are you thinking about this? And so, um, so ultimately, like I understood where his mindset was, and in and in his defense now, because I couldn't think about it then when I I wrote a book called Thirty Seven Seconds, and what I explain in his you know, I was very angry for a long time because he wasn't listening to me. But what I've come to understand later is that he was in his own way. He just didn't, didn't, his tools for calming me down and making me less anxious, the data was not indicating for him that there was a problem. If the data was saying something else, he would have jumped on everybody and said, you need to listen. Um, But there was nothing to do because there was no data indicating any problem. So, so I knew where he stood. Now I needed to tell everybody else, right? So I told doctors and nurses, I'm like, I'm going to hemorrhage. You're going to need extra blood. I need hysterectomy. Who's going to give me hysterectomy when I give birth? Like I was a crazy, bad shit, crazy person. Everybody who talked to me, friends, family were like, why are you saying this? You know? And so I was like, I don't, I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. At one point, um, I, I, you know, I asked a friend of a friend who, you know, was a resident gynecological oncologist. And he said, Stephanie, it's never going to happen. And I said, okay, well, just humor me. What happens in the event I give birth under an emergent situation and I need a hysterectomy? He's like, well, your OB wouldn't do it. So they transfer you to maternal fetal medicine, but you don't want an MFM to do it. You want a gynoc to do it because if a, a gynecological oncologist has more experience with high risk reproductive organs and you are 20% of your blood supplies going to your uterus during that time, that is high risk. So I made an appointment with the head of gynoc at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. I sat down with him. I, we were first in the, the waiting room and Jonathan is with me. And these women um, are in the waiting room with no hair on their heads, the IVs in their arms, and they are suffering from reproductive organ cancer. And here I am, a seven-month healthy pregnant woman going in to, to meet with this doctor. And my husband says, I'm embarrassed to be here. Oh, and you can imagine, oh, right? Kills. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. He's like, I don't even want to acknowledge that. You're a freaking insane person at this right. point. I mean, yeah. I, to his credit, he went with me to all these meetings. But at the same time, I mean, maybe in the back of his mind, what he said is he thought maybe there was something wrong with the baby because I was going off the deep end and he had never seen me like this. And so I'm in a, in a meet, and I said to him, I said, I said, I understand what you're saying, but everybody's telling me, you know, I'm on an open road you know, and they see a clear highway and I see an 18 wheeler headed straight for me and no one can see it. Mm-hmm. So maybe this doctor has heard of a patient who's had this foreboding and has, maybe there's a tumor, maybe there's something going on that I don't know, but maybe there's a more, um, less invasive, but more testing they can do that's not going to harm the baby or myself to maybe figure out what's going on. And that was what I was thinking. And, you know, so I'm sitting here and you have to understand this 
is a no-nonsense doctor asking why and how I even got this appointment because there's no diagnosis of a, a placenta accreta, you know? And so he's like, Ms. Sarno, how can I help you? And I was like, like psychiatry okay. is over there. <laughs> you need yeah. it. So the resident's taking notes. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so my placenta preview is going to turn into an accreta. I'm going to hemorrhage. You're going to have to give me a hysterectomy. And I just, you see me and I see you, you're my doctor. So let's just do this. And my husband said it was very mafia-like. And he's like, I see you, you see me. And so he's like, have you been on the internet? And I was like, well, yes, I have, but this is going to happen. And so um, so he's like, why don't we get an MRI? And if the MRI is positive for an accreta, I'll schedule myself for your, you know, at 37 weeks to to." Um, to do the perform the hysterectomy if there is an accreta. And I felt better because I had something more to do. And but then the MRI came back negative. Hmm. And it's like, you should feel better. I said, I feel worse because I'm running out of people to tell the story to. So then everything goes on and on. I post on Facebook. If anybody has my blood type, I'm gonna need it. I was, I wrote goodbye letters, I sent out goodbye letters. Um, and then I go in. 36 weeks to the day, Jonathan's in New York. I'm in Chicago. He's giving um, a speech at this, this bar um, associations, whatever. And I bleed all over the kitchen floor. And I'm like, today's the day. And of course, today's the day because he's in New York. And I'm here. And I guess the hospital, they triage me and, um, and I'm Skype chatting with him. And I'm like, please love this child. Oh my God, Stephanie. This is my goodbye. Like you've made me the happiest woman in the world, you know, and, and, and people say, you know, if you were my patient, I, you know, I would have listened to you. I said, um, I said, and what I, what did they say? I said, um, they said, and I would have halted the surgery. I said, yeah, but this baby was coming out no matter what. So it's not like this is an elective surgery where you have foreboding, where you're saying, you know what, let's wait, let's reschedule it. It's like the, the, the D day was my due date and that was it, my delivery date. And so the fear was quite palpable. The truck is getting closer and closer to me. Everybody else is thinking I'm crazy and no one can feel or sense what I feel. I kiss my daughter who's two at the time, a hundred times because I'm convinced this is the last time I'm gonna see her. I'm being wheeled down to the operating room. My doctor's like, Stephanie, I know, you know you're nervous because Jonathan's not here. I'm here to take care of you. And I said, there's something wrong. You need to put me on a general anesthesia. And she's like, I'm not going to do that because that'll put the baby to sleep. I know you're nervous because Jonathan's not here. And, and I'm being wheeled closer and closer to the OR. And as they open the door to the OR, I'm acutely aware that this is the room that's going to give life to my son mm. and take mine. And they prepare me and they put a, you know, the curtain in front for a C-section and I deliver a healthy, happy baby. And seconds later, I'm dead. Okay. I, if, listeners, if you're listening to this, I hope you're in a place where you can like experience the chills that I am feeling right now. So you knew, so you, you started bleeding in your kitchen just to recap what happened. You started bleeding kind of randomly. It wasn't your duty. Did you have a scheduled C-section? Scheduled C-section at 37 weeks because of the previous. So, so it's 36 weeks now that you're a week early. You're like 
oh my God, I'm not freaking expecting it. Well, you're expecting it all, but not expecting. Well, I didn't know the time. Like I, I tell people, I'm like, I'm intuitive. I can see things, but I don't, I don't know time and space, but I knew the day that I delivered him would be the, my D-day. Would be that day. And you knew you were going to have to get a C-section either way. So you go in and how long was it before like you delivered the baby and then you flatlined? Seconds. Seconds. So baby's coming out and you're, you're dead. Baby comes out, they deliver the placenta, and as soon as the placenta came out, I flatlined. And so what happened? So I had a very rare pregnancy complication called an amniotic fluid embolism. It's a one in 40,000 risk where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. And if you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into somewhat of an anaphylactic shock. So the first part of it is you go into cardiac arrest and you flatline. And then if you are lucky enough with 40% are lucky enough to get resuscitated, that's when your body goes into full DIC, which is your body's inability to clot blood. Um, anesthesiologists use the acronym, it's called like disseminary and something coagulation, but they call it death is coming. And it is worst case scenario in the OR. And so they they get me back and they, they infuse your body has like 20 units of blood and I was given 60 units of blood and blood product to keep me alive and of O negative blood. So that's, you know, to be, if, if I gave birth at home and this happened, I wouldn't have survived because you need a ton of blood to stay above. above and did what? they prepare the O negative beforehand? Because well, here's the thing. So I predicted a lot of things I had. I ended up like in the last few weeks of my pregnancy, I had a consultation with anesthesia and usually, and I tell this to everybody out there before having surgery, you have the right to call up and have a consultation with anesthesia. Mm -hmm. Anesthesia will explain to you, try and calm your fears. This is where you, in the case of a pregnant woman, this is where you'll recover. This is what the epidural will do. This is how your C-section will, look. like they just start talking through. What I did not know is that anesthesiologists are really the people who keep you alive. They are, you think your doctor is the one that's because they're the quarterback. That anesthesiologist is responsible for you staying alive and, and I mean, and staying alive. And so, so she has this consult with me and I, she explains all this stuff and I say, okay, well, what happens in the event? And I go through my whole list and then I, I die. And she said, um, she had never heard a patient speak so clearly about what was going to happen, had sought out specialists and had uh, had a baby before, had a C-section before. And with that one phone call, the one thing I didn't predict because I didn't think she was listening, she flagged my file and incorporated extra blood in my crash cart the operating room. That's mm -hmm. insane. And that is why I'm alive today. And she was also the chances that she was on on the day that you were there is also such like a, a fluke experience. Correct. And she, to this day, I mean, I've spoken at her hospital before. Now she's head of OB anesthesia at, at a big hospital. And, um, you know, she said to her, the intuition part wasn't um, flagging the file for her. The intuition part was she was putting records in um, in files on the computer when my flag was called. And she was like, what am I doing here? I need to be in the OR. And there was an attending anesthesiologist. So for her, she didn't, she didn't need to be there. And so when she walked into the OR, she told the anesthesiologist before I flatlined, she's like, I got a bad feeling about this. So she felt the intuition as well. She does. So 37 seconds, you're, you're yeah. dead. 
So I flatline, yeah, I flatline for 37 seconds. They resuscitate me, they get me back in, they stabilize me. Um, they put a Bakri ball inside to stabilize the blood. They transfer me to the ICU and I'm on life support and Jonathan shows. Oh, he's probably like, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. But you know, the, the beautiful thing about an Air Force pilot and an anesthesiologist, they think quite similarly. Mm-hmm. So he was not emotional. He said, what do we need to do to get her the next hour, day, whatever it is? And by the way, if she needs a hysterectomy, this is the doctor we met with. And they said, they took note of it. They thought it was odd that we met with one. And then they said, um, well, she's stable now, but you know, we don't know whether she'd survive another surgery right now. So we're, you know, and I, I think we're, we're okay that we stabilize the blood. And then seven hours later, the bells and whistles go off. I'm still hemorrhaging. And they call in the gynoc that I met with two months before to perform the hysterectomy. They did the pathology on the uterus. And there was an accreta that had started to form, but when the MRI was taken, it was not detectable. Okay, hey, so when you came to, I hope you like looked that guy in the eye and you did the oh my god, so I, again. <laughs> but yeah, so you know we're, we're Jewish, as I said, and so we have a baby boy, and on day eight we're supposed to have a circumcision, and so on day seven, I, think day, I get confused whether day six or day seven, they they have to take. I was on a medically induced. Um, coma and so at this point my kidneys have failed I'm on dialysis I had a heart attack blood transfusions I you know I was so edemic that I was wheeled everywhere but at one point you know when they they extubate you to see where you are mentally because you can't guarantee where you are um you know neurologically and the very first thing I did was see my swollen belly you know when you're edemic you're still big with fluid I looked down and I'm like am I still fucking pregnant <laughs> and, and She's back, ladies and gentlemen <laughs> and at that point my husband was like I think she's gonna be okay <laughs> she knows where she is she's cursing you know but it was almost like it's the weirdest thing because I spoke to an anesthesiologist about it she's like sometimes when you go into anesthesia is the way you come out of it so obviously mm. I was fear and um and so it was like it was a pause button and when I came out of it it was like press play and continue. And then I went through all the hospital and all the different departments saying, I told you so. And they were like, all of them wanted to know, how is it that you knew? And, you know, the doctors to this day are like, they don't have a medical explanation for it. They just, they said, I think you need to go spiritual on this one. And that's what I ended up doing. And so back to the 37 seconds that you were dead, did it, do you have any memories during that time? I, you know, I do after I did this research. So um, we had done a lot of talk shows and talking a lot about intuition and, you know, listening to your voice. Um, And then at some point I decided I was going to write a book and I wanted to, you know, I was on Steve Harvey's show and Steve said, did you see the light? Mm. And I said, I don't know, man, they gave me a lot of drugs. (laughs) It's <laughs> a lot of lights. Um, but I thought that that was irresponsible of me. I was like, you know, I wasn't afraid to say that oh, this is one life to live and that's it. Um, but if there was a way to find out, could I find out? And traditional therapy was not helping getting me out of the PTSD. I was like, you know, they were like, how can I help you? And I was like, first tell me how it is I knew everything beforehand. And they're like, well, let's not worry about that right now. Let's just worry about getting you out of trauma. And I said, see that I have a problem with that because one asshole doctor said, self um, self-fulfilling prophecy 
Mm. I said, so you believe that my mind could cause my organs to combine hemorrhage and um, need the hysterectomy and everything. And he's like, well, I didn't say I believed it. It's just the only thing I can come up with. And I was like, well, that's an asshole thing to say. I'm thinking I manifested my own death and I could have taken myself away from my children. Um, And I had grappled with that for a very long time and I couldn't function. And the premonitions kept coming for other things. I was feeling other people's pain and life and death situations. And I was like, like shut everybody up. Yeah, let, let, I want to get off this ride. Um, so I ended up doing regression therapy that uses mm-hmm. hypnotherapy to take you back into those moments. And usually it's used like, you know, if you've had trauma, you go back into these moments as an observer. So it's not as painful as it was in the moment of impact, but maybe you're calmer under a meditative state to see everything that's there. And I wasn't so optimistic that that would, that would um, reveal any great thing, but I most certainly didn't expect to get what I got out of it. And, um, and she finally got me after 30 hours to go back into the OR. And when I was there, I was like, Stephanie, the observer's coming in. And then there were three Stephanie's. It was Stephanie on the, the, um, the gurney being operated on and then spirit Stephanie. And so when people say, you know, do you see the light? I'm like, I saw my spirit flash at the moment of flatline. But if I was in the eyes of my spirit, maybe I would have seen that tunnel of light, but, but that's what I saw. And then, um, I saw everything that happened in the OR, like the details of where people were standing, what they were doing, what my daughter was doing in the labor and delivery room with our nanny, what my husband was wearing when he got off the plane, you know, and then I saw hundreds of spirits and I saw, you know, we're doing one talk show and the host was like, um, you know, so, you know, psychology today, we'll talk about how I, you know, of course, when people have near-death experiences, they want their loved ones near or there to help, but it's all a figment of your imagination. It's okay, let's put a pin in that. Let's say I didn't see them, which I did see the ones that have passed. But it's the ones that I didn't know who had messages for the people I do know, including my best friend whose son died when he, or her brother died when he was seven, mm. um, had some specifics around the death that she didn't know. And I could, and I didn't know her at this time. And I explained the room and what that looked like in the bedroom. And then I also saw my husband's father who passed away way before I met him and he had a message. And those kind of things were like, they were very difficult to, to um, counter because I would have never known these things. And then because I videotaped, I mean, because I'm a TV producer, <laughs> all of my hypnotherapy, but I also didn't want somebody tampering with my mind. I'd never been hypnotized. And what happens if they tell me like, oh, okay, well, every time you say hello, you're going to fuck like a chicken. And yeah. I'm like, you know what? I have evidence. So yeah. I videotaped that. And because I videotaped all of that, I took it back to the doctors who were present. Because of course, Jonathan was like, it's quite graphic. And he doesn't want to see his wife in pain. And you see me convulsing and you see me gagging and you see like, I was reliving that moment of flatline. And when I took the tapes back to the doctors who were present, you know, first of all, Jonathan said, well, how do you know this isn't a recalled episode of Grey's Anatomy in your head? Totally. I said, okay, that's an asshole thing to say again. I feel like, you know, whatever. So no sex for you. Yeah. And, I then, <laughs> and then I said, okay, it's a fair point. Right. I've been under a lot of medical care. I've been in a coma. I'm mentally not there. Maybe I made this up. Maybe I did conflate, mm-hmm. you know, a TV show with my reality. So um, I go to the therapist. I said, how do you know what I'm telling you is true? And she says, sometimes the only validation we get is the patient feels better and you feel better. Mm-hmm. I said, 
that's not good enough for me. I have witnesses. So I took the tapes back to the doctors and the doctors were like, I didn't go to medical school for this. You shouldn't know. <laughs> They're like, it's accurate down to where we were saying what we're doing. And we're on a Netflix series called Surviving Death. And in episode one, my doctor is there and she's like, there is no way she would know anything. She was not there. And, um, you know, and the things that I said that they were doing. And so that was all the validation I needed that consciousness exists outside of the body. And so it's, it's been a long journey, but it's, it's one that has caught, not fraught with <laughs> some bumps in the roads. Right. And Stephanie, you went through something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but I think my favorite thing about your story is you have this moment where you're on these TV shows where people are making you into like the next Virgin Mary or something, or like making you into a, a into a religious symbol. And yet your message is listen to your effing intuition. Yeah. And, and that's so powerful because I'm sure it could be easy to also get a, caught up in creating a cult or like, yeah, but, it, but the interesting thing is like, I don't care whether you want to believe it's yeah. a experience or or that we're hardwired this way I just want you to listen to it there have been times in everybody's life who's listening to this podcast you yourself me myself who we've had moments intuitive moments and we've gone against it and then we're like I, I knew it I knew it I knew not to invest in that I knew not to take this job I knew not to get into this relationship I knew not to ski that last run you know like I I you just know mm-hmm. and all I'm saying is that whatever you believe, whether you believe in in God, universe, your spiritual connectivity, consciousness, um, our hardwire, I believe we are all wired for this. I just believe some people listen to it more than others. And when you do listen to it and you practice listening, and they could be little things. Somebody calls you and you're like, I bet that this is this person. And when you're right more times than not, it's like, it's fine tuning your intuitive self. And then you're like, okay, you know what? Then where it counts, especially like, I'm sure there are moments, you as a mother, that you're like, I'm not going to do this today with my child. I don't want him walking there. Now that could just be all of the synapses from, your experiences of reading stories, whatever it is. But today's the day that you are going to not go left when you always go left. You don't know why. You don't need validation that if you went left, the car spun out of control. And, mm-hmm. and at this point, nothing happened. I'm just saying, so who cares? So you have to go five minutes out of your way, but your gut is telling you not to do it. Then do that. Yeah, it's it's such a great reminder. And I think for our listeners too, this is something, this is a piece of homework for y'all just to kind of take inventory and start listening and jotting down when you are feeling these intuitive pings um, and see how they add up to one another. And Stephanie, I think, I mean, I met you before I was pregnant. So you were in my brain pretty much my entire pregnancy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, for better but or for worse. You know, people are like, do I get your book, you know, for my pregnant granddad? I'm like, I will tell you that it's you know, shy away from my story is extreme for sure. But what it is, is a reminder. So what? So here's the thing. So what if you're histrionic? So what if you're neurotic? So what if you're driving your doctors batshit crazy? So what if your husband is like, you are off the deep end? Mm-hmm. I would rather you get your voice out and them saying she was crazy. And then you send flowers and candy later say, okay, I will never have another baby again. Or I was crazy. I'm sorry. Then be, keep your mouth shut. Yeah. 
right and be dead right. And I think and I think that's a woman thing too. Like I think we're told to like sit down, listen to the doctors. They know everything. They're the experts. They don't question anything. Um, and I definitely, even during my pregnancy, there were so many false leads on things where I just started just becoming very distrustful of everything. Did I tell you this, Stephanie? That oh, I think so. no. at the 10 week mark, they found they found that Jackson had an extra finger. And they like put me to a genetic counselor and, you know, we were going down like our family history and what this means. And then I went to and got another ultrasound with a like more uh, specialized OB, no extra finger. And then I got my NIP, my nipped back. And it said that he had an extra chromosome and that he was going to have Klinefelter syndrome. And like, I should schedule my termination now if I want to terminate literally nothing. I learned like literally I was having a boy that I had tested that he had an extra chromosome and that my next steps were to wait for two weeks and get an amnio. And then it was a false positive, but no one told me that false positives occur. So the moral of the story, whether you, and I had a wonderful delivery and everything. And what, but, and what did your gut tell you when you were getting all this devastating news? Fuck you to all the people like truthfully. And um, that I just never want. It was, I, I, I kind of felt like I went into teacher mode where whenever someone's pregnant and you probably feel the same way, you're like, I want to be there for people to be able to spin out and have these questions. Cause no one was there for me. Yeah. And uh, my gut was telling me. This should be gut- another conference that you hold. <laughs> yeah. Right. Seriously. Just, just for going, just transitioning here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, with the, what is it? The gluten t- or the, uh, what is it called? For the diabetes? Uh, yeah, or? the diabetes. And I was like gluten intolerance. Yeah, the diabetes test, uh, the glucose test. Gestational, yeah. I yeah. failed the first one and then they made me do it again. And that was my first time that I was like, but what if I don't? Right. And they're like, but you're going to like ruin your baby and and there's so much fear mongering. Yeah. So it's funny thinking of both sides of this where your your doctors were so flippant and mine were like so fear mongering, <laughs> um, but neither were right. No, and that's, that's the thing. And I, you know, uh, you know, one of the things I, I do talk about is like, you know, they, it, it took a doctor who didn't know me, who was using her own intuition because my doctors, what they were missing was I had a baby with them before. Yeah. I am a neuronic histrionic person. I am somebody who's really calm and under high pressure job of TV producing with live, like I can handle myself. This was different. And for, you know, they have lots of, they deliver 12,000 babies a year at Northwestern. So it was like, oh, you're perfect. You're healthy. You're pregnant. You do your prenatal care. We, you've got this. This is just maybe a bump in the road. Maybe there's too much testosterone from the baby boy. Like it was just, yeah. their, their DNA goes to, let's just calm the patient down. Everything's fine. But they were missing the big flag of this is not typical behavior of Stephanie. And that should have been enough for them to be like, let's, Let's do something else. Maybe there's, instead of me seeking it out. And, you know, Jonathan says to me all the time, he's like, well, you believe in um, uh, predetermination. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, what happens to your free will? And I said, it was always free. It was, um, my expiration date is my expiration date, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. But it's up to my free will. I believe they're on two different paths. It's up to my free will to have spoken up because how well I survived was due to my free will. There are, you know, and that is the difference. So maybe I would have always survived, but if I didn't speak up, 
maybe I would be one at they've in Northwestern's had 10 AFEs, amniotic fluid embolisms in their entire history at the time of mine. Six did not make it, and the other three are in permanent vegetative states. So, wow. I'm the first to have survived a full-blown AFE at their hospital. And the question is, it's like, you know, when they said it on um on one of the, we were on the doctors and on the, the talk show, they said, you know, she was in a teaching hospital, we were prepared, but she prepared us. And so that was the lesson here. It's like, what would have happened? And that was also the fear and the PTSD, the 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 feeling of, oh my God, if I didn't say anything, where would I be? Yeah, you would have been dead. Right. Or, or I would have been And so I that's the stuff that kind of freaks me out. So it helps to talk about it, to help educate people about it, because then that is my lesson and that is my mission in life. It's like, you know, yes, is there an afterlife? Yes. Is there consciousness outside the body? Yes. Can you do we change from a solid to a gas? Yes. You know, like all of this, but that is not the near-death experience was life-altering, but that's not where I focus my, I don't believe that that's my my mission in life. My mission in life is to bridge this gap between science and spirit and help with the, especially with health and life um, moments of of listening to it because it, it can not only help your life, it can save it. Oh, Stephanie, this is so frustrating because I want to talk to you for like seven more hours. There's uh, yeah, we haven't even covered the bodybuilding. So I know I was about to say we haven't even done the bodybuilding. That she guys basically the TLDR is go watch her documentary on Netflix. It's it's the first episode. I was watching it with my husband. I was like, I know her, I know her. You know, it felt so so cool. I, I sent it to so many people and also your book. But Steph, how else can people find out? more about you and learn more about your narrative yeah um well i'm on i'm trying to cut back on social you know i started at tiktok and then i was like i can't keep up with it um but uh steph arnold 37 is my instagram i'm on facebook i'm on tiktok i do respond um you know to the emails because nine times out of ten the emails are coming from very stressed people of life and death intuitive moments um, but stephaniearnold.net, they can learn more about where to find me, more about the speaking that I do and um, the other shows that we've been on. And um, and I'm going to launch a podcast when that happens. I'll make it public, but, but yeah. Okay. Oh, well, Stephanie, before we leave, I've got six fast questions for you. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll squeeze them in very quickly. So tell us an unknown fun fact about you. <laughs> this is um i used to figure roller skates that's a great fun fact and i'm gonna google stock that afterwards <laughs> who would be a dream person to be connected with um, um that is a very good question um I don't know. I, I feel like I'm living my dream being connected to my soulmate. Oh, so every, everybody else is like, it's just gravy. And, and you've also been on like most talk shows that most people want to be on. So yeah, there's like, that too. <laughs> I've worked in that world for so long. So dream, a dream person. I mean, no. Okay. All right. Barry Manilow. Okay. Barry. <laughs> like, you know, we joked about it. Cause I was, I was in love with Barry Manilow. 
and Andy Gibb growing up, but Barry Manilow specifically. And so Jonathan takes me to one of his concerts and, you know, he's much older now and he's worse pants up here, whatever. And, and I am, Jonathan and I were joking. He was like, I was like, that's my hall pass. And he's like, like he's like, I write. So he's like, gladly, no problem. And I was like, why does everybody think he's gay? I haven't been in his bedroom. Like, you know, and, so, and then he comes out with the article, like he finally admits it. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't believe it. I still love him. I will change him. Yeah. Um, what show are you watching? Um, so I like documentaries. Um, I was, I just finished that, um, that Malaysian flight, that MA370. I'm like, I'm like, why isn't anybody looking at where that woman found the debris in the in the ocean? And why are they looking over here? And who's covering up? And um, but no, I love documentaries. Yeah. And then I, I just introduced Jonathan to the Spanish or the Mexican film Like Water for Chocolate. Oh, oh such it? a good one. Yes, of course. He never saw it. And I was like, you have to watch this. And so I love that. But I love I, there are certain movies that are on replay to they make me feel like our favorite movie is princess bride oh the best and um and we watch hot tub time machine all the time like a, uh, yeah so it's like yeah 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 totally I love and allison um in woodstock illinois which is where they film groundhog's day so we watch groundhog's day too that's amazing yeah it feels apropos uh what book are you reading or do you recommend it could be personal or business besides um, your yeah <laughs> Uh, so which book did I just, I, why well, like, like I have books that I read for just fun beach, you know, books that are, that are guilty pleasures, like the Liam Moriarty books, mm-hmm. like, you know, she, she writes just fun. I like her writing. Um, but there is a book called Anti-Fragile by Asim Taleb, and it's a fascinating there is no word in the English language. If I give you the word fragile, what is the opposite of fragile? And so if you think about that, mm. he created the word anti-fragile. And it was really a powerful, and it goes with our, our theme of what we're talking about. What he says is that there are things like you take a little bit of poison every day in order to defend yourself from being poisoned. You lift weights to make your body stronger, but you're breaking down muscle in order to build it up. Mm-hmm. So you are creating something from a fragile state. Like if you're weaker, if you were to take poison and you would die, but you are, or you're weaker because you have no muscle, but then you build it trauma what he says, you're growing through what you go through. Mm-hmm. So in the case of, of all of our traumas, if you look back to the moment of impact and how it devastated you, and then coming out through it and tr- being triumphant over it or becoming the warrior or, or like me taking ownership of my body and doing bodybuilding mm-hmm. and like whatever it is, um, I would not be the person I am today without having gone through that. And that makes me anti-fragile. Ooh, I love that. I'm going to read that one. Um, also, I've, I got a little taste of Princess Bride references in that one with the poison. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite emoji? Huh. I use, I use GIFs more than, than emojis. Like every okay. time. Okay, you can yeah. tell me. 
animated tell me, ones. Tell me your gif. Well, they're all sexual. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I'm in menopause. I'm like, all right, let's let's go. <laughs> <laughs> your kid's like, mom, please, that was not meant for me. I am. Stop sending that. No, you know, I use I use a lot of the double heart emojis, like when you know, give and take, or the growth of the heart. Um, but it's old school emojis. My kids are like, that is so 2000. Oh. That's nice. That's like, really I am not a Gen Z. Thank you yeah, so much yeah. for telling me. And then my final question for you is who gave you permission or inspired you to do the thing you wanted to do with your life? Whoa. <laughs> um, me. Oh, yeah. No, I think that you have you have people who influence you and you watch what they're doing. Like you, you've watched the Oprah's of the world. You watch your parents go through things. You are there, all these elements, but ultimately it's up to you to take that first step. And so my husband is, is there like, I wrote an article for Johns Hopkins and for me to write an article in a medical journal that's read by doctors about intuition or foreboding. And there are some spiritual tones he gave me permission, even though I am not the PhD from the University of Chicago, he is, and I am the graduate of Suntan U, that he was like, you can do this and help. So he inspired me to keep going. But at the end of the day, it's all of us taking that step to say, okay, I'm going to do this. So you get influenced by, by elements, but it's up to you. Up to you. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. It was so wonderful to have talk you through your story, hear your story. Hopefully it uh, inspired others the way it always inspires me. Thank you. Yay. And then listeners, if you like today's show, make sure to follow Stephanie, give us five stars on Apple, and we'll see you the next time on The Sixth Degree with Emily Merrill. Have a wonderful day.